0: Welcome back to The Absolutes. This is Professor Greg Reichberg speaking to you from Oryang, Sweden. Today's episode I've entitled, The Absolute in Moderation. Allow me now to explain. There is a paradox that lies at the heart of being human. We aspire to the absolute, cannot live meaningfully unless we find access to it. But simultaneously, we cannot do all that we do, think all that we need to think about, and order all of our choices directly in function of the Absolute. As much as a life well-lived requires the embrace, or at least an openness to the Absolute, we must also be prepared to accept the relativity that accompanies our existence and to make the necessary compromises that follow from it. The challenge is to navigate between these two poles, the absolute and the relative, as would a slalom skier down a slope between alternating gates. Press too far one way, you will leave the course, crashing into a side fence. Press too far the other, you will slide onto a side piece that likewise sets you away from your goal. Press too hard on the absolute, in the belief that I can readily identify it in all the concrete moments of my life, is to bring the absolute down to my level. Far from approaching closer to it, I lose what little proximity to it I might otherwise have had. Press too hard on the relative, life loses its savor. Without a commitment to something other than passing pleasure, and without moments that take me beyond the race to fulfill life's everyday needs, a sense of creeping despair will eventually overtake me. This is the meaning of the biblical Sabbath. Man does not live on bread alone, as Jesus memorably said. Thomas Aquinas sought to explain the dynamic that I have just alluded to, when he distinguished between two kinds of virtue, moral virtue on the one hand, and theological virtue on the other. Borrowing from Aristotle, St. Thomas considered virtue to be a firm and stable disposition, a habitus in his lexicon namely the inward possession of a skill for carrying out a good action in a good way. A virtue is a reinforcement, ordinarily gained through practice, of our basic cognitive and emotive equipment. A virtue equips me to engage in a particular line of activity. Unless we suffer from physical impairment, we all have an ability to think because we have minds. But to think well about things relating, for example, to mathematics, is an acquired ability that depends on prior learning and practice at working on, say, algebraic equations. The same could be said of all the other disciplines and arts. Likewise, that I am able to control my anger, so I become angry only when appropriate, and only in the appropriate manner, is itself a disposition that is ordinarily acquired over the course of time, after critical reflection on what I have done and felt in previous moments of my existence, previous moments when I've become angry. Acquiring virtue takes time and effort. Succeeding is the fruit of life experience and maturity, of trying, failing, trying again, and finally, getting it right. It can take much sweat and tears to acquire a virtue, but once I have it, the action that follows can seem natural and, in some sense, effortless. St. Thomas explains that moral virtue consists in finding a mean, a middle ground between two extremes namely, an extreme of excess on the one side and an extreme of deficiency on the other. In this sense, moral virtue is always relative to a mean. Hence Aristotle's famous image of the golden mean. Because it is relative to a mean, enabling us to act in such a way that we fall neither into excess nor deficiency, every moral virtue consists in a kind of moderation. Take anger. The person who is virtuously angry, is not the one who, when he becomes angry, is as angry as he can possibly be. Excess of anger we term rage, and it is never a good thing. Likewise, inability to become angry, even when confronted with grave injustice, is not a good thing, as it conduces to passivity in the face of wrongdoing. Being a doormat for others to roughly trod over whether over myself or others, that is not a trait to be emulated. That good action is relative to a mean and consists in a kind of moderation is equally true in many other aspects of everyday life, in matters relating to generosity, experience of pleasure, pursuit of knowledge, acquisition of wealth, making judgments about the behavior of others, and so forth. In each case, I navigate between the opposing extremes of excess and deficiency. As I've already noted, St. Thomas contrasted moral virtue to another sort of virtue that he termed theological. Theological virtue is a bit harder to understand, as it is not commonly used in everyday speech. Theological, in this context, namely as describing a mode of virtue, signifies directedness to God, who, for St. Thomas, is the Absolute. The prefix theo is from theos, the Greek word for God. The suffix logical, logos in Greek, in the adjective theological can misdirect us away from the intended meaning, insofar as logical suggests rational or discursive thought. For instance, is when we speak of logical reasoning. What St. Thomas wants to convey by this usage of theological, in connection with a particular kind of virtue, is logos in the sense of mind or spirit. According to this meaning, A theological virtue is an inner disposition by which the human mind, my mind or your mind, comes into contact with the Absolute, God. Mind involves cognition, grasping the truth about something. In this case, the Absolute. But mind, as understood here, is not limited to cognition and also encompasses the affective, the feeling side of myself. Because I have a mind, I think. But not only that, I also desire, hope, and love. In this context, a nice equivalent for logos, as root of the suffix in theological, would be our modern term self. Through theological virtue, my self is equipped to have repeated contact with the absolute following the classical christian authors saint augustine most notably saint thomas enumerates 3 theological virtues faith by which we can have contact with god in thought hope by which i rely on god to direct me to my fulfillment in the absolute and love also termed charity, by which I enter into communion with God, the Absolute. Significantly for our purposes, St. Thomas underscores that theological virtue is not constituted as a mean between excess and deficiency. The person with faith cannot trust too much in God, cannot rely too much on God, nor love God to excess. The theological virtues have no internal limit. On their own line of activity, they thrust us into the absolute. They call us to heroism and impel us to commitments that run wholly counter to prudential caution. I am always moved when I hear the story of Maximilian Kolbe, a Catholic priest who during World War II was incarcerated at the Auschwitz concentration camp. A prisoner had escaped. In retaliation, the SS officer in charge picked ten men to be starved to death in an underground bunker. Upon being selected, one of the men cried out, My wife! My children, on hearing these words, Father Kolbe volunteered to take his place. He did this knowing full well what would come next. He and the nine men were starved and deprived of water over a period of two weeks during which all died, apart from Father Kolbe, who was then killed by an injection of carbolic acid. In 1982, he was declared a saint, on the rationale that he had died a martyr of charity. Maximilian Kolbe went to the extreme in his love of God and fellow man. He went to the extreme in his commitment to the absolute. But compare this case of Father Kolbe to some would-be martyrs from earlier times who sought this status and the heavenly rewards that were thought to come with it, by engaging in provocative acts, say, by cursing the Prophet Muhammad in Christian areas that had come under Muslim domination. The Catholic Church condemns such action as inconsistent with the correct understanding of faith, and indeed of hope and charity. My point in recounting this is to explain how St. Thomas's statement that theological virtue is not measured according to the golden mean. In other words, that pushing to the extreme is good when it comes to our engagement with the Absolute. This must be understood as pertaining to what really falls within the scope of theological faith, hope, and love. In the example just given, St. Thomas would say, I think, that the person who sought martyrdom by cursing the prophet of Islam had acted out of a mistaken belief that the teaching of his Christian faith required this of him. St. Thomas was no fan of Islam, and some of his words about Islam are regrettably harsh and misinformed. But at no time did he suggest that opposition to Islam is directly bound up with the tenets of the Christian faith. Moreover, this pursuit of martyrdom assuring one's eternal reward in the afterlife would not be a true instance of theological hope, but rather of presumption in one's own ability to compel God's favor. Namely, it would be a sin. All to say that going to the extreme in matters of faith, hope, and love is good, honorable, and worthy of admiration only when one remains within the ambit of what truly belongs to faith, hope, and love. Things done in their name, but in a manner alien to their authentic nature and spirit, are far from good, honorable, and worthy of admiration, and may be downright bad. This takes us into what today is termed religious extremism. Significantly for our purposes, when it comes to the thoughts and practices that are connected with theological faith, but without being inherent to faith itself, St. Thomas maintains that virtuous behavior does require adherence to a mean. Thus, the avoidance of both excess and deficiency. This domain is placed under what he calls the virtue of religion. This is a moral and not a theological virtue. Here, deficiency and all sorts of excesses are possible. Excesses that hide under the appearance of faith. In his great novel Don Quixote, Cervantes repeats a proverb that has returned to haunt us today The devil can hide behind the cross. What this means is that all sorts of claims, more or less loosely connected with theological faith, can be taken for the faith itself. And inspire behaviors that should rightly be condemned as extremism. The examples could easily be multiplied across different religious traditions, but let me just mention one from the tradition in which I situate myself Roman Catholicism. Not long ago, Pope Francis declared that under Catholic teaching, capital punishment should no longer be considered admissible a storm of criticism from conservative circles erupted under the pretense that this represented a rupture with long-standing Catholic doctrine. Some even went so far to suggest that Pope Francis's position on this issue was heretical, in other words, directly opposed to the faith. This, however, results from a confusion between faith itself and things that can be judged as deriving from faith, either by theological reasoning or long-standing practice. These things do not have the absoluteness of faith, and we must be prepared to abandon them when new circumstances and insights that arise in the course of time call for a different approach. In this connection, Pope Francis has recently warned against dangers of rigidity in matters spiritual. Far from manifesting an attachment to the absolute, rigidity represents one of the ways in which we deviate from the mean required by the moral virtue of religion. In this case, it represents a deviation by way of excess an excess that is condemnable. The examples could be multiplied. People who claim that, under the heading of divine teaching, namely a faith, that abortion must be prohibited under all circumstances by civil law, that divorced Catholics who have remarried must not be allowed to receive communion, that homosexuality is morally deviant, these people misguidingly attribute the divine authority of faith, to our all-too-human reasonings about that faith. It is not to say that such reasonings are necessarily false. They may or may not be, depending on the case. But we should pronounce them with modesty and refrain from disparaging as heretics or secular deviants those Catholics who might dare to disagree. The moral of the story is that those of us who consider ourselves people of faith must be ever vigilant not to equate the absoluteness of faith, an absoluteness that calls us to the extreme and which rightly eschews all lukewarmness. This absoluteness of faith we should not equate with the moderation and indeed humility that we should exercise in all that pertains to our reasonings about faith and the religious observances that follow from these reasonings. We should pursue the absolute without concern for excess and show due moderation in all else.